Hello and welcome back. This is Exhibit AI, a podcast exploring contemporary legal issues for tomorrow's technology, presented by the Center for Legal and Court Technology at William & Mary Law School. I'm your host, Lindsay Whitlow, CLCT's Buswell Research Fellow. As is our new custom, before we begin, I want to ask our listeners to please excuse any sound quality issues we may have as we are practicing social distancing and recording this episode via Zoom. Today I'm joined by CLCT Research Fellows Catherine Sorrell. Hey. Michelle King. Hi there. And Sam Habine. Hi. Thank you all for being here today and volunteering your time. Um, I really appreciate it because, you know, it's a difficult time to get us all in the same room, um, virtually at least, before school starts. Um, And we're really lucky to have you guys. Um, So Sam is one of our summer research fellows this year, and part of his research overlapped with what we were talking about today. So I really couldn't resist asking him to join us. Um, And much like our guest in our previous episode, Michelle and Catherine offered to share their summer time with us because today's topic is a passion project for both of them. So um, it's been a lot of fun doing the research for this episode together. And with that build up, we should probably actually introduce the topic for today's discussion. Catherine, would you mind doing the honors? Yes, absolutely. I'd love to introduce it. So uh, I would like to start by mentioning um, that on our first episode that we recorded about smart cities, um, which would be episode six as listed on our website. Um, uh, In that episode, we mentioned that we would mostly be focusing on the legal implications of smart cities within the U.S. because that's the law we're studying or have studied and obviously where we have access to the most information. But I think we would be remiss to not acknowledge that uh, smart cities are a global phenomenon and there's something to be learned from looking at this topic on a broader scale. Um, So the focus of today's episode will be on the global implications of smart cities and really more specifically on international human rights law and how it intersects with um, the development of smart cities. So um, we will get to smart cities um, more specifically, but we're going to lay some groundwork first uh, about international human rights law before we get to the smart cities aspect. So just as a forewarning to our listeners. So let's start at the top then. Uh, We've talked about why cities are important in our civil rights episodes, episodes 9 and 10, but why are cities important to international human rights and other global issues? Well, one of the biggest reasons is that instantiating human rights requires resources and it requires institutional power, which is often concentrated in cities. Realizing human rights often connects to social movements, many of which are born in or gain the most attention and momentum in cities. Yeah, and this allows human rights to gain more legitimacy more quickly. We have seen that in our history in the United States. When social activists bring attention to injustices, the general public understands the importance of embracing certain human rights. And cities may also be sites where human rights are easier to implement and embrace than at the national level. Interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, cities have local governments that have enormous amounts of power. Um, And we don't often think of cities as the site of major policy changes um, because we focus more heavily on the national or even state level policymakers. Um, But gridlock at these levels often opens up opportunities for local mayors and city councils to act and create policies at the city level 
um, before they reach or before they're created at the national or state level. Yeah, for instance, in Europe, when the refugee crisis was unfolding a few years ago as a consequence of the war in Syria, European governments were at times slow to embrace the refugees or issue clear policies on whether they would welcome them. But leaders in European cities began clearing the way for welcoming refugees, declaring that their city would accept and resettle refugees from Syria. This action on the part of local leaders put pressure on the national governments to act and move the policy forward. This is just one example of how cities have embraced certain human rights principles as part of their local policies, even before they become integrated into national policies. This example reminds me that we should note cities are often the major destinations for immigrant populations driven by labor supply and demand, as well as changes in technology. We can also see that cities are often global by nature and therefore necessarily globally engaged. Cities are often the entry point for multinational corporations and interests, and cities even develop and build up around them. City governments are empowered to make deals and decisions to invite these corporations into their cities before they gain a foothold at the national level. This discussion always seems to come back to that public-private partnership between city governments and private corporations. It seems to be at the root of how smart cities are built. Definitely. Consulting companies who work globally are heavily promoting smart cities, convincing governments that they need to adopt them. Um, in fact, we're seeing smart cities pop up in developing countries at even a faster rate than they are in Europe or North America. Um, so in the developing world, smart cities are not necessarily even being built into existing cities. At times, they're developed from the ground up as entirely new cities that are fully equipped with smart city technologies. And this phenomenon echoes cycles of development that we've seen in the past, where foreign investors have entered into developing economies by um, building entirely new cities and communities with the latest and greatest technology. Um, but sometimes it can end up looking like social engineering. And some of these experiments, of course, have been more successful than others. Real quick, I think this might be an appropriate time um, to clarify that most smart city technology, often the technology that is most beneficial, is not controversial. It is only a small sect of technologies and practices involving the collection and storage of data that create kind of monstrous issues. However, these technologies and practices are what make their way into the news and legal podcasts like Exhibit AI. We wouldn't have a job if they didn't do bad things, so... <laughs> Um, if the corporations are so instrumental in the spread of smart city movement, maybe we should talk a little bit about how these multinational organizations can be or are governed. Sure. So on the whole, corporations have escaped accountability in international law. Over the past several decades, the privatization of government functions has been a global phenomenon goods and services that used to be exclusively provided by the government are now contracted out. We can see this in the outsourcing of certain military and defense functions, foreign aid and development, and transportation and security. Oh, do you have an example of how we see this play out? 
Yeah, a tangible example of this is um, seen through the U.S. Agency for International Development, or you may have heard of USAID. Uh, among other partnerships, it contracts out to private entities to do post-conflict projects, and those are also run by private entities. Yeah, and to add to that, smart cities are no different on the privatization front. It's entirely possible that smart cities may be the next vanguard of privatization on a hyper-local level. But the irony is that private entities applying these technologies at the hyper-local level are these enormous global corporations. And they operate all over the world. They are often more powerful and have more constituents than most countries. Um, the trouble, as Michelle said, is that on an international level, corporations are enormously significant players, but they escape accountability for their actions and decision-making because they're treated almost as non-entities under international law. How is that possible? It seems like the more internationally you play, the more accountable you should be. Right, but there are a few reasons for this and it can get a little bit complicated, so we'll try to simplify it. First, corporations within the United States are given a fictional legal personhood so that they can own assets, they can sue, and they can be sued. If XYZ Corporation puts out a bad product, it can be brought to court by people harmed by that product, and they can be held accountable for certain wrongs. Um, this doesn't capture any of the nuance in this space, but we'll start there for now. Exactly. Internationally, nation states are given the same type of legal personhood on the international stage, but corporations are not. Meaning that a private company being held accountable in the court system for international bad acts can be extremely difficult. It's known as corporate invisibility. But we have all kinds of agreements between countries. None of these come into play here? Well, um, one form of agreement that we have between countries that impact corporations uh, specifically are um, bilateral and multilateral investment treaties. And these treaties are made by governments on behalf of corporations who are incorporated in their nation states. And multilateral investment treaties are basically between more than two countries, while bilateral investment treaties are only between two countries. But essentially, uh, these agreements set out terms that govern the relationship between corporate investors from one country, which is party to the treaty, who are investing in the other country that's the other party to the treaty. Um, these agreements have served multiple purposes over the years, and they've implemented important protections um, from a government's powers of expropriation, for example. So in other words, when a corporation makes a hefty investment in a country, to build a power plant or offer services uh, like providing water, for example, um, to the citizens of that country, there have been risks that the local government will expropriate those resources or place those um, assets at risk to the detriment of both the corporation and the citizens of that country. So these agreements have served an important purpose for sure. Over time, these agreements have certainly encouraged corporations to invest in countries where they otherwise might have considered the risks too high. But one of the drawbacks that has emerged is that many of these BITs, bilateral investment treaties or multilateral agreements, also can limit the ability of the host government to regulate these companies. So the protections for the companies um, from expropriation or other risks 
they can also create barriers to holding the companies accountable to uh, the, the country's domestic laws or even alternatively to international human rights standards. So a natural follow-up question from all of this is why would host countries voluntarily enter these agreements and limit their ability not only to expropriate resources if they're so inclined, which usually occurs in non-democratic countries, but in the case of more democratic countries, why would they enter into these agreements that would limit their ability to regulate foreign corporations through these treaties? Um, the answer is simply that in many cases, it's because they have to attract foreign investment in order to build basic infrastructure or grow their economies. So the, the home countries, um, the countries that enter into these agreements, benefit from these agreements as much as the corporations in some cases, because they're, uh, they make their domestic markets more attractive to these foreign corporations, and they really do need an influx of capital. It's here where I would also like to add that the primary enforcement mechanism of these agreements are international arbitral tribunals. These tribunals adjudicate disputes between governments and foreign corporations and, again, grew out of unfair advantages to states in their own domestic courts. So a tribunal can be more of a neutral arbitrator between the corporation and the state. Yet, in recent years, many of the arbitral decisions have favored corporations, reading many of the bilateral and multilateral investment treaties as giving up their amount of license to companies. And to make things even more advantageous for corporations, many of these companies have been known to actually change their nationality or the nationality of the subsidiary company that would be subject to the regulations in order to have a more favorable bilateral investment treaty applied to them. So say an American company wants to invest in Germany, but they see that the bilateral investment treaty between the U.S. and Germany is not as favorable to them as the bilateral investment treaty between, say, Canada and Germany. They may create a Canadian subsidiary that owns and operates the activity they will conduct in Germany, making the applicable bilateral agreement the one between Canada and Germany rather than the U.S. and Germany. So even though the multinational corporation does not have any official legal personhood at the international level, they have a tremendous ability to navigate international legal waters to their so does all of this mean that it's impossible for national governments to regulate corporations or hold them accountable for wrongdoing? What kind of leverage do they have? Well, one thing is that even though corporations may not be legally liable, um, they still may be held responsible in the court of public opinion. I think the best recent examples of this is the way that tech companies are scaling up at such a fast pace. And meanwhile, they're struggling to deal with the fallout of human rights violations. Um, so one example is the use of Facebook's platform to stoke tensions that have led to the Rohingya genocide in Burma. Um, in this case, there have been long-standing tensions toward the Rohingya community, which is a Muslim minority community in Burma, and patterns of discriminatory treatment and abuse toward the Rohingya people by the Burmese military in particular. So Facebook, in this context, serves almost as the, the internet in Burma. Um, and uh, many people in uh, Burma and other countries um, in, in the developing world access the internet through the Facebook app. 
And uh, Facebook as a company has really worked hard to create internet access in these countries through the use of its platform. But in the case of Burma, um, just as we've seen in the U.S. or the U.K. and in other Western countries, Facebook became the perfect tool not only for internet access, but also for the promotion and exacerbation of divisions with lots of false information being spread about the Rohingya, which just uh, added gasoline to the fire of the conflict. Um, in the last few years, the military has been able to use the cover of this disinformation and the myths that have spread online about the Rohingya to perpetuate genocidal acts on the Rohingya people. They've displaced uh, much of the community to Bangladesh, including more than 700,000 people since 2017. They've committed mass killings, mass destruction of property, and other criminal acts under international law, but with the support of much of the Burmese people and even the support of Nobel Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi. She has actually gone from being a symbol of peace and democracy to now defending the Burmese military actions before the International Court of Justice. And, of course, it's entirely unfair to pin the actions of the Burmese military on Facebook. As Catherine said, these are long-standing conflicts. But Facebook has essentially abdicated its role in understanding how its products can play a part in these conflicts and how it can make them worse, become a weapon in the hands of some, and even enable death and criminal actions. They have continually resisted any regulations, maintained its platform as neutral, and have not taken a very proactive approach to combating disinformation being spread through Facebook. And going back to our previous discussion on bilateral and multilateral investment treaties, as well as um, international arbitration, Facebook's role in Burma provides a good example of a government actually benefiting from the multinational company remaining fairly unregulated or unaccountable. Uh, the military is able to use Facebook's platform for their own purposes, again to provide cover for genocidal acts and continue to gain support for their actions by promoting these myths and lies about the Rohingya. So we can't always assume that governments want to play a huge role in regulating companies who are active in their countries. And other tech companies have had this problem too. Google, which also owns YouTube, has really struggled with how to manage the content on their platforms. But Google actually hired a human rights advisor to show that it was holding itself accountable, even if the international legal community was not. And we're seeing that with other companies, including Facebook, where they are bringing human rights experts either onto advisory boards or into their C-suites. And a lot of this activity might be cosmetic, but it is a result of pressure from employees who have been staging walkouts at a lot of these companies. And of course, investors, board members, customers are also exerting pressure. And in Facebook's case, these customers include advertisers who have started boycotting the platform and not spending their ad dollars, be it for a month or indefinitely. So I think the question is whether hiring one person, even if they're at the top, will really fix the problems. They are not just about making big decisions. There are systematic issues that are being made all the more complex by geopolitical realities, conflicts playing out on the ground, and all kinds of other dynamics many of these companies, not just tech companies, 
don't seem educated about before they enter the market. They now have to be really proactive about not getting into these controversies and messy situations that can impact their reputation. So much for no press is bad press. But I still can't believe there's nothing out there that could give us some idea of how to deal with corporations under international law. There is still no binding legislation, but the UN has published guiding principles on business and human rights. The document suggests that corporations do have obligations under international law. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. What kind of obligations? The basic requirement is to, quote, avoid causing or contributing to adverse human rights impacts throughout the corporation's own activities and to seek to prevent or mitigate such impacts when directly linked to them via business relationships. And maybe we can break it down for the lay people. Yeah, so what that really means is that corporations need to engage in what we call due diligence, um, and they should also remedy impacts when needed through legitimate mechanisms. Um, Legitimate mechanisms mean that there must be a discreet way for victims to receive some sort of remedy when there's harm. The guiding principles also talk about company reparations, but they don't specify what that must look like. So there's obviously a lot left open to interpretation in the guiding principles, but they at least give us a place to start. I would also add that companies taking this process seriously are learning that they have to actively engage with local stakeholders on the ground in order to get this right. They can't rely on local laws or regulators to ensure that they're not violating human rights principles. For instance, they may receive a permit to build a power plant or operate a mine But that doesn't mean that the local government has adequately engaged local communities, including indigenous peoples, to make sure that the project will not displace people who've been living there for generations, jeopardize their water sources, or even initiate a conflict between ethnic or social groups on the ground. So companies not only need to make sure that they talk with local stakeholders to prevent this kind of thing from happening, they also need to make contingency plans. Providing remedy means that if something goes wrong, they compensate victims in some way. So the UN guiding principles give that give corporations one pathway toward addressing these issues that maybe they don't address through local laws or domestic regulations. Yeah, I think after all this talk about the effect that no regulation on multinational corporations may have on human rights it may be helpful to spend some time talking about what those are or what the phrase human rights actually means. All right, I'm going to paraphrase here. But to begin with, human rights in legal terms are those that have been adopted in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and then further explained and delineated in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. The UDHR is non-binding, but it has been a source of guiding principles for countries. The ICCPR and ICESCR are treaties binding on countries that have signed on to the treaties. Uh, we love nothing more than our acronyms in the law, so <laughs> we'll try that to... That was a tongue twister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll try to... Um clarify as we're going, because I'm sure that those are going to be names that are not familiar to people. We'll, we'll try to sort of bring that home again. Um, but 
as I was rereading through the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or UDHR, um, to prepare for this episode, I recognized several familiar refrains among the articles, um, things we can find in our own Constitution and Supreme Court cases. Definitely. Like Article 5, no one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment or punishment. Or Article 19... Everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. Exactly. You know, I recognize there the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment, and the First Amendment, uh, freedom of expression. Um, And there's plenty more to go on with that. The document isn't long, but we really can't get into all 30 articles in this episode, so I'll make sure to add it to the show notes for those interested in digging deeper into the individual provisions. For now, though, I think it's important that we bring this back to smart cities. Um, That's what the audience is here for. So how does the UDHR and the UN Guiding Principles apply to smart cities? Yes, let's give the people what they want. So both documents implicate several rights that may impact smart city design. As you might imagine, the right to privacy makes an appearance. Even though the U.S. Constitution does not explicitly enumerate a right to privacy, as we've discussed previously, it is considered a fundamental right by the Supreme Court, think of penumbras, and one which is very present in the discussion of smart city data. What is collected, when, and how, and who owns the data once it's harvested. Yeah, and the rights to equality, free expression, association, assembly, and work are also sketched out. Um, We talked about several of these um, rights in our previous episodes, um, specifically our episode on smart cities in the First Amendment, which is episode seven. But briefly, there's some danger that certain rights may be infringed upon by increased surveillance through smart city sensors, for example. And it could be difficult to associate with a particular group um, that might be a target of either heavier police monitoring or general public ire if at any time sensors can determine where you are. Yeah, and we see this happening um, with protests. You know, there's been surveillance from police starting in Ferguson and Baltimore years ago, continuing through the current protests for racial justice this summer, where drones have been used in Minneapolis and in Texas, in addition to planes and helicopters. Yeah, and, and in addition to, um, to those really long litany and long list of rights, there's also a, another principle applied directly to cities known as the right to the city. I've never heard of that. Uh, tell me more. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to quote here from the Global Platform for the Right to the City. Um, quote, the right to the city is the right of all inhabitants, present and future, to use, occupy, and produce just, inclusive, and sustainable cities, defined as a common good essential to a full and decent life. Um, so, One of the metaphors that um, is part of this conversation is the idea that the beach is free. Anyone has access to the beach, in other words, and generally, you know, most uh, beaches in the world are public and you don't have to pay to to go to the beach. And um, it's one of the few spaces that we experience in our world that everyone can can, can access and go to. And and there's sort of uh, an application of that idea to the city that 
um, you know, all citizens should have access to the city and its benefits, and um, there shouldn't be barriers to access. There shouldn't be barriers to living in a city if you want to live there, and you should be free to use, like, the transportation system, for example, or, um, you know, to, to walk along the streets of the city and, and enjoy all that it has to offer. Um, so part of this conversation is about who has access to the city and who doesn't. Even though it's not a common concept in the United States, it is a right that other nations have enshrined in their constitutions. But it wasn't always this way. A really interesting example can be seen in the Right to the City exhibition through the Smithsonian Institute. It walks through the movement as it took shape in Washington, D.C., and uh, we'll link to that in the show notes for you to check out, too. But one thing that really stood out was the phrase, urban renewal is urban removal. In an effort to quote-unquote clean up the city, politicians and legislators often ignored what their plans would do to long-standing communities, and without the pushback of residents would have led to even more gentrification of predominantly minority neighborhoods. Thankfully, there is an increasing global understanding that there is a right to access to the city for its citizens. Um, Inclusion-exclusion can be exacerbated by the design of cities and the incorporation of new technology. As we discussed in our civil rights episodes, episodes 9 and 10, technology may not be able to account for all citizens. The output of AI used in smart cities is only as good as the input sort of the garbage in, garbage out concept. Um, I'll add another quote here from an article from uh, Harvard's Berkman Klein Center. Um, Quote, AI carries the serious risk of perpetuating, amplifying, and ultimately ossifying existing social biases and prejudices with attendant consequences for the right to equality. So where all of this um, intersects, in other words, is that we have existing sort of layers of barriers, prejudice, social bias existing in cities already. And when you put AI and smart city technology on top of that, especially when you're building smart cities all over the world, you can have massive consequences. So to follow that discussion, um, we wanted to take a look at what those global implications and consequences might be. Um, So we're going to round out this episode a little bit differently than we have in the past. Since we wanted to see how human rights have actually been affected on a global scale um, as a result of the introduction of smart cities, um, each of us uh, has taken um, a different self-proclaimed smart city and explored some of the legal implications and ramifications that the technology has had on the citizens subject to its implementation. Um, So, Michelle, if you wouldn't mind... Uh, we talked about, when we were planning this episode, sort of the background of how a lot of cities are being built from the ground up, but we do have examples in South Africa specifically of cities that sort of had that, of uh, what we would call sort of a rudimentary example of the smart city technology that sort of expanded into something a bit bigger. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that. Just to give a disclaimer, my case study is very brief and only lightly touches on the myriad societal and racial issues that underlie what I will discuss. So um, 
South Africa has had sporadic implementations of smart cities projects. For example, the announcement in 2019 about a new 5G-enabled city built from the ground up in Gauteng and My City Buses in Cape Town. But these and a few other projects appear to not be as fully realized as private neighborhood surveillance systems. Late last year, author and podcast host Michael Quet wrote about a suburb just outside of Johannesburg's inner city called Parkhurst. This and other suburbs became a test case of sorts for companies like Boomacam, um, which now plans to implement 15,000 smart CCTV cameras around Johannesburg. And these closed circuit television cameras are more than just recording devices. Um, they use artificial intelligence and machine learning to track faces, look at behaviors and patterns of activity, and objects like license plates. And this project started in 2014 when two startups announced that they would install fiber-to-home high-speed internet. Pretty benign-sounding infrastructure project, right? To the general public, that it was no big deal. But really, when you looked under the surface, it was actually a cover for phase one of a smart CCTV system. These smart cameras are now able to fill in areas left unwatched when human private security forces are out patrolling and then some. So just a quick tangent, um, neighborhoods or communities or suburbs like Parkhurst hire private security to monitor their homes in addition to having their own private security systems on the homes. They probably have gates um, and walls surrounding their homes as well. Um, to live in South Africa and be a homeowner, you highly secure your property. And so going back to these smart CCTV systems, with the ability to now deliver large packets of data over high-speed networks, these cameras start to quote-unquote learn what normal activity in an area looks like. When something abnormal arises, it flags that activity for manual review by a person sitting in a control room. But these unusual behaviors can simply be a person loitering or a taxi stop. These cameras and the intelligence that they collect are so powerful that a day's activity can be searched to find videos of people wearing a certain color shirt or just riding a bike. And just like with slavery in America, the fingerprints of colonialism and apartheid are all over this. The Parkhurst suburb is made up of about 5,000 mostly white residents with some businesses thrown in the mix too. And in fact, Parkhurst is part of a second wave of gentrification in South Africa, where rental housing was converted to owned homes by mainly young, educated, wealthy, white South Africans who pushed out poor white residents. Um, not the gentrification that we're used to hearing about in the United States, but in Parkhurst's case, it was officially designated as a whites-only zone during apartheid. So the economic makeup of that neighborhood changed more than the racial makeup did. So this area or any area where these smart CCTVs monitor are comprised of mostly non-white people who make just 2 to $3 a day. They're not the ones who own these homes, but they're the ones who might come to work in the homes. They might be strolling past the homes, um, but they're definitely considered by the people who live there to not be part of the community. And also, just like in America's Silicon Valley, 
the people behind the AI in South Africa train it to suspect people of color of crime. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely talked about bias in facial recognition before, and it's not surprising that it's no different in South Africa. Consciously or unconsciously, bias finds its way into how the information gathered by this technology is interpreted. A final similarity is the feature that monitors for unusual behavior was developed by the military in Australia, and it's now being used for civilian private policing. Did you say it's being used by private companies? Yeah, this technology isn't even being used by municipal police forces. Should the police need that information that's captured by these cameras, they can gain access to it. But all of this data is being collected, used, and then deployed on the public by private security companies. So the racialized nature of this policing is not lost on some of the decision makers. It's in the materials they distribute to look at skin tone as suspicious. They celebrate this technology as a way to be safer in their homes. And they use scare tactics to encourage residents to pay more for system enhancements. Unlike Facebook in Burma that Catherine discussed earlier, where Facebook has taken a hands-off approach, companies like Boomacam are actively exploiting divisions within South Africa to make money by selling their smart CCTV technology and add-ons. A lot of that's really information that just isn't known, I would say, here or really elsewhere. Um, specifically how the neighborhoods are broken up in South Africa. Um, you know, home ownership and the way that economic uh, disparities have not really shifted all that much um, since the end of apartheid um, really is driven home by the idea of like who is owning these homes and these systems and who's being affected by them. So that sort of dovetails perfectly into our next case study on Hong Kong because um, a lot of what's been happening recently and if you haven't been following the news Sam's gonna kind of take us through a little bit of what's been going on for the past year or so um, has to do with smart surveillance and what that looks like for people who should have access um, to the internet um, and what look that looks like when they no longer do. Um, and so, Sam, if you want to go ahead and take it away, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. So um, China has really become a global superpower in the world of smart city technology. And when discussing what's going on in China right now, it's really difficult to avoid politicization um, when we talk about some of these issues. But our goal when talking about Hong Kong is to highlight how good intentions can go awry when the public-private partnership refrain we've been discussing is taken to the next level. So before doing research for this podcast, I was aware that Hong Kong maintained some level of self-governance from mainland China um, before recent events brought Hong Kong's autonomy into mainstream news. However, I will assume that at least some of our listeners, like myself, could use a short crash course on how this separation occurred and what exactly it entails. So until 1997, Hong Kong was a colony of the United Kingdom. In 97, Hong Kong was returned to the People's Republic of China, also known as mainland China, but there were conditions. The Sino-British Joint Declaration ensured through Hong Kong's drafted basic law that Hong Kong would remain a capitalist economy system 
with its own currency, legal system, legislative system, as well as basic human rights. For 50 years, until 2047, Hong Kong was designated to be a special administrative region of China, but retained a great deal of autonomy. I say was designated because the central government in Beijing maintains control over Hong Kong's foreign affairs, as well as legal interpretation of the basic law. Many advocates for democracy, both within and outside of Hong Kong, argue that this mainland control has stunted the universal suffrage promised by the basic law. And this brings us to the current conflicts in Hong Kong. Last year, in early June, the Hong Kong government introduced an extradition bill, which would have allowed fugitives to be sent to countries without extradition treaties, namely mainland China. This sparked huge protests around Hong Kong. An estimated 1 million protesters were met with thousands of rounds of tear gas, rubber bullets, sponge grenades, beanbag rounds, and at least 19 live rounds between June 2019 and May of 2020. Roughly 9,000 people were arrested for rioting, arson, and assault. The legislation has been withdrawn. However, in May, Beijing announced that it is preparing a new national security law for Hong Kong that is expected to stunt protesters' speech by outlawing, quote, subversion, secession, terrorism, or conspiring with foreign influences. Therefore, Anyone in Hong Kong who acts against China can be arrested and prosecuted. Mainland military forces have also accompanied their legislation into Hong Kong's affairs. While the violence towards protesters has come from Hong Kong police, we can tell this because they are speaking Cantonese instead of the mainland's Mandarin. The presence of mainland Chinese police instills deep fear in the protesters. So the political development of the mainland China and Hong Kong divide are really much more complicated than I've introduced them to be. And they get even more complicated when you factor in the words and actions of the United Kingdom and the United States. But I think I have laid enough of a foundation for those who, like myself, were not fully aware of Hong Kong's citizen struggles for autonomy and universal suffrage. With this backdrop, um, I'll now kind of get into how smart city technology has enraged the protesters in Hong Kong. So in December of 2017, the city published a document titled Smart City Blueprint for Hong Kong. The city, through a consultancy study, accepted recommendations for six major areas, mobility, living, environment, people, government, and economy. Many of the Blueprints initiatives are greatly beneficial to the citizens of Hong Kong and have not been met with resistance. However, increases in surveillance have created serious conflict. One of the initiatives under the Smart Living Umbrella is to increase the number of free hotspots to provide free public Wi-Fi. Simultaneously, under the Smart Government Initiative is the implementation of the so-called Smart Lamppost Pilot Program meant to collect real-time city data. Many people may have seen the photos of protesters taking saws to lampposts while comrades tie their features with umbrellas. Um, and these images have really emerged as uh, images of the resistance towards mainland China's interference. Protesters are removing the lampposts because the imaging, Bluetooth, 
and RFID technology they possess, which I should say were supposed to deter littering, crime, and collect data to further improve city planning, have now been transitioned towards the task of identifying and arresting protesters. And Hong Kong protesters are undoubtedly weary of how smart city surveillance has been used across mainland China, and in particular, in Xinjiang against the Uyghur people. Smart city technology, through video surveillance and other sensors, has been gathering detailed information about the Uyghur people, a Muslim sect, detailing their every move, including which door they prefer to use um, when leaving or returning to their homes, with whom they associate, and whether they are practicing Islam. John Oliver recently shed light on the surveillance, um, internment, and so-called re-education of the Uyghurs. Benign acts, such as suddenly quitting a smoking or drinking habit, has been labeled as extremist activity, and recently, uh, more than a million men, women, and children have been imprisoned with the help of this smart city technology. Undoubtedly, as Hong Kong citizens see the largest detainment of a religious minority since the Holocaust taking place in Xinjiang, they fear the same could happen to pro-democracy groups in Hong Kong. In fact, in December of 2019, protesters wearing hijabs and silenced with communist red handprints over their mouths took to the Hong Kong streets in a rally against China's treatment of the Uyghur people. The protest started peacefully, but devolved as protesters tried to burn a flag and one officer reportedly drew a pistol. And so, despite police violence in Hong Kong and the threat of being labeled terrorists under Beijing's national security law, and the reality of how smart cities have already been used to aid the Chinese government in the successful detainment of an unpopular minority, recent local elections in Hong Kong demonstrate a strong resistance to Beijing's tightening grip. However, while Hong Kong continues to fight for their autonomy, other countries are opening themselves up to China's surveillance state. Chinese companies like Alibaba and Huawei have become global giants in the development of smart cities. In developing countries like Kenya, Partnering extensively with Huawei has provided invaluable expertise and financial support while building Kansas City, Kenya's innovative hub being constructed with smart city technology from the ground up. However, Huawei's past acts of espionage and deep ties to Beijing present the very real risk that data from Kansas City may end up in Chinese hands. While the benefits of such a partnership may seem promising, if the relationship sours, it is very difficult to kick a company out of your city after you have intertwined them into the infrastructure. As we have mentioned earlier in the podcast, holding these foreign companies responsible is a really challenging endeavor. Definitely, and I think this sort of also dovetails into Catherine's case study on Toronto because um, there has been a lot of protest against what um, the sort of parent company was planning to do um, in order to make Toronto a smart city. And it is difficult to kick them out once they're in. Um, But if you can prevent them from getting the foothold in the first place, you might have a chance. Um, So Catherine, maybe if you want to take over from here. Absolutely. I would love to enter the conversation um, with what we might consider maybe a counterexample to um, some of what Michelle and Sam presented um, and also to some of what we're seeing globally. 
Um, but my case study was on Toronto, and we thought it was important to include Toronto, even if it's not a, a example that might be exemplary of what's happening everywhere. Um, but we wanted to provide um, a, a story of a quote-unquote failed smart city experiment or what happens when stakeholders start to question what exactly a smart city development will mean for their community and actually um, are successful in sort of stopping uh, some of those forces in developing the smart city. But again, this, this example might be increasingly rare. Um, I think it's yet to be determined whether what happened in Toronto will um, happen elsewhere. If, for example, tech companies sort of, you know, either learn their lesson about citizens desiring more accountability and transparency for smart city technology, or uh, on the other hand, um, as in the case of, I think, what Michelle and Sam uh, explained with um, South Africa and, and Hong Kong, um, if smart city technology becomes, you know, much more ubiquitous, um, that any form of resistance or skepticism wears down. But I'm putting the cart before the horse um, with that background. So uh, first, let me explain some of the details of what actually happened in Toronto. Um, so Toronto's smart city story begins in 2017 with a partnership between the city of Toronto and Google's Sidewalk Labs. With the backing of Justin Trudeau, they made plans to implement smart city technology along Toronto's waterfront. And uh, highlights included a plan for autonomous cars, smart trash collection, as well as measuring air quality and creating uh, heated sidewalks and streets. I mean, who would argue with that? That sounds awesome. If you ask me, it's really cool sounding stuff, especially the heated streets. And I'm particularly interested in those maybe because I'm from Texas and Canada just sounds insanely cold to me. <laughs> um but nonetheless, they, they build the you know, development of this smart city as a way to create affordable housing, a way to improve mobility, mitigate climate change, and address other sort of classic urban problems. But after a protracted debate over some of the transparency, privacy, and autonomy issues at the heart of the development, followed by the death knell, arguably, of the pandemic, Sidewalk Labs actually announced in May of 2020 that they were pulling out of the project and halting all plans um, for developing this uh, smart city in Toronto. So, of course, a lot happened between 2017 and 2020 uh, to get us to the point where Sidewalk Labs pulled out. The initial announcement uh, for, for this development was, was met with a lot of fanfare and excitement. Um, but over time, as you can see, different parties started to sour on the idea. Oh, that's really interesting. What did they do? Um, a group of Torontonians began a formal campaign to end the project, uh, which was called the Block Sidewalk Campaign. So this, this group, Block Sidewalk Campaign, formed after um, some of Sidewalk Lab's documents were actually leaked to the public. And uh, just as a reminder, um, Google is the parent company of Sidewalk Labs. But these documents suggested that the company was making moves to receive a portion of Toronto's city property taxes, as well as development fees, um, using the argument that they were financing infrastructure being built in the city, so they deserved a cut. The documents also revealed that Sidewalk Labs had ambitions to move beyond the original 12-acre space that had been set aside for the smart city technology to be implemented. 
Um, so it appeared in some from the documents that Sidewalk Labs wanted to develop other parts of Toronto with smart city technology, and they wanted um, these other financial benefits that usually would have gone to the local government. So back to, to Block Sidewalk, the resistance group, they issued a statement saying, quote, Sidewalk Labs has orchestrated a misleading, undemocratic engagement process that harms the public interest, end quote. One of the members of the campaign um, went on to say, quote, if people are going to say the public endorses this, they need to ensure that the public knows what this is. We need to shake this endless corporate marketing campaign off of our city. It's steamrolling actual discourse. We need to press the reset button on this process, close quote. So not to pause the story too abruptly, but I just want to note that this quote from Block Sidewalk perfectly articulates concerns that citizens have when the due diligence process um, is ignored, rushed, or overlooked. If Sidewalk Labs had really done much more due diligence or engagement with local stakeholders before they developed all these plans um, to go into Toronto, they might have avoided this mess to begin with. But of course they didn't. And so you have a high level of distrust that emerges, not just from resistance groups like Block Sidewalk, but also from average citizens, especially when the company is really not being super transparent about their overall ambitions. And you're getting these sort of leaked public documents that are revealing what they really want to do in the city. One of the questions that we don't have time to get into in this episode, but that I think flows from the overall conversation that we're having is why corporations aren't better at due diligence and why they tend to be pretty bad at engaging local stakeholders. If we want companies to be better at this, meaning the due diligence process, and more compliant with human rights standards, then we need to start examining how they can become better at detecting risk and reducing it. Risk to the smart cities, or what do you mean? So that risk includes risk to communities not just to the projects themselves or to the company's bottom line. There are some great resources out there, like the Corporate Human Rights Benchmark, uh, and they're an organization trying to name what good practices in these areas look like, and they're tracking corporate performance against the standards set out in the UN Guiding Principles and in other UN conventions, such as uh, the UN Convention on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, So even though international law has really lagged behind in holding corporations accountable in a formal legal sense, as we discussed at the top of the episode, there's really also a lot that's emerging and developing around how to implement better processes so that they can follow the UN guiding principles and other standards. Um, Back to Toronto. I'll hop off my soapbox to continue the story. Um, Another important development in the Toronto story involved the Digital Strategy Advisory Panel. And this group formed as a panel of experts meant to help advise Sidewalk Labs on some of the governance issues, particularly related to privacy. But by 2018, members of the panel began to actually resign when they realized just how badly Sidewalk Labs' plans were for personal privacy and protection. One high-profile member who resigned from this panel um, is a woman named Anne Kavukian. And this is an extremely notable incident because um, she is actually the former Information and Privacy Commissioner for Ontario, Canada. And she's also world-renowned for developing the concept of privacy by design. 
So she's actually an expert in how to design privacy protections throughout a system. When she resigned from the panel, she said publicly, uh, quote, I imagined us creating a smart city of privacy as opposed to a smart city of surveillance, end quote. Um, she also said, quote, just think of the consequences. If personally identifiable data are not de-identified at source, we will be creating another central database of personal information controlled by whom that may be used without data subjects consent that will be exposed to the risks of hacking and unauthorized access, close quote. So you can see um, just from what she said on the record and that other, just from uh, knowing that other advisory panel members were raising these objections and questions and then getting such unsatisfying answers that they actually resigned, um, you can imagine how in the dark local citizens and even local government officials likely remained over privacy and data issues at the heart of this project. Ultimately, what ended up happening was the advisory panel asked Sidewalk Labs to provide justification for why they were using digital mechanisms to provide these services to the citizens and businesses of Toronto rather than non-digital tools or mechanisms. And remember, this panel is made up of people who are experts in the digital uh, realm. So it's, you know, they're at a point where they're forcing Sidewalk Labs to ask foundational questions of purpose. Why do we even need to do this digitally in the first place? Maybe it's actually not better to have smart city technology apply to trash collection, for example. Maybe the trade-offs for privacy are too high. So once you start to ask these types of questions of a technology company, you know that things are dicey. So between 2017 and 2020, all of this controversy and unease led to an erosion of Sidewalk Labs' initial plans. It led to a scaling back of their power and control over the project, but it still didn't work. And it might be that without the pandemic, Waterfront Toronto would have proceeded, but I suspect that the pandemic provided Sidewalk Labs with a good reason to abandon the project. Of course, I have not even touched the tip of the iceberg on all that unfolded with Waterfront Toronto, but I do think it's interesting to note what happened with these smart city plans when the citizens and experts, including tech experts, began digging around the edges of the plans and moved past, as that one member of Block Sidewalk said, the marketing campaign. It's also a good reminder, um, as a final reflection on some of the themes that we've discussed, that a danger in these public-private partnerships is the conflicting purposes that corporations and local governments have. A corporation is going to sell a product, and they may do so without the best interest of all citizens in mind. Most corporations target to certain constituencies, and they sell so that these constituents will buy. It's a transactional relationship. But local governments have a different purpose. They have a duty to serve all citizens, not just a target constituent group, and to provide services regardless of what those citizens can give back to the government. Of course, there are duties asked of citizens, like abiding by the law and paying taxes, but it's, it's a different relationship that serves a very different purpose. So to extend that to the realm of international law with smart cities, you see the tensions that emerge between governments who have a duty to uphold human rights and protect citizens from violations of those rights 
and then the corporations who are entering into scenarios where they may be promising something to citizens uh, to improve their lives, but the question is at what cost? Will it cost them human rights protections, for example? And for some communities, as it was in Toronto, it may not be worth it. So I think that's a really great jumping off point um, to sort of wrap up this entire discussion. Maybe you guys, if you have some additional thoughts after hearing um, what our uh, what your colleagues have had to say, um, maybe if you see some themes that sort of stretch across different localities or um, if you can see sort of comparisons or um, where you can contrast different ways that re- they've reacted, um, citizens have reacted to the implementation of this technology, um, I would love to hear if you guys have any of those observations um, to share with us. Yeah, so we talked about this a little bit offline, but just who has the power in each of these cases and what are you able to accomplish if you do have power? Thinking about South Africa specifically, like if you're just walking by one of these cameras, you don't consent to the massive amount of information that these cameras are gathering on you. You may not even know that it's happening. And I didn't research to see um, how much of a grassroots effort is pushing back on the smart CCTVs, but to me, it just seems like such a such an invasion for one group of people to want to protect their privacy so greatly, but to the detriment of others who have absolutely no say in their participation in that. But yeah. then contrasting that, sorry, with like Toronto, where you had a base of people with power who were able to, you know, affect change, which isn't currently present in South Africa. Yeah, and to build on what Michelle is saying, I think a lot of it comes down to the trust that you have in those who have the power as well. I think that there are ways to protect your citizens. There's been a lot of good legislation in the European Union with the GDPR that is doing great things to make smart city technology safe and to protect their citizens. And a lot of people in the European Union are very trusting of the technology that's going in because there are um, significant safeguards protecting their rights. Yeah, I think also that one of the things that has struck me in just listening to Sam and Michelle talk about Hong Kong and South Africa and then doing my own research on Toronto, even though the outcomes are different in each case and there's certainly very specific differences, it's so striking to me how similar a, a lot of this technology ends up kind of impacting local populations when it is implemented. Um, and, and it can be very easily manipulated very quickly. Um, so even in the most democratic of, of contexts, when it's, when it's part of the infrastructure, quite easy for a, a surveillance state to be created almost overnight and for it to be used on, its pop, on local populations in that way. And I think that's why you saw resistance from Toronto when they sort of started to see what the implications could be. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the thing that, that I've been reflecting on as well is that we have these sort of global solidarity movements that have emerged um, and somewhat due to the pandemic, uh, also due to social unrest and protest that's been going on. 
around the world, um, especially this summer. And uh, so I think that more and more the types of uh, global phenomenon like smart city developments are tying these sort of issues, not just to national contexts, but they're really becoming global movements of solidarity. And, you know, I can draw a lot of parallels between the racial justice issues in the U.S. and those in South Africa. I can draw a lot of parallels between um, the fight for democracy in Hong Kong and and much of what's happened in Eastern Europe, for example, um, as they've sort of been grappling with the end of the Cold War and what that means for their countries um, in the last 30, 40 years. Well, it's at least the last episode where I think I'm going to, unfortunately, have a hand in it. Um, but there is a possibility that we have other episodes just, you know, sort of in the works um, that veer away from this sort of broader picture that we've painted so far this summer. But the time of my fellowship here and my contribution is coming to an end. So I just want to say thank you to everyone who has participated and, and helped out with this. It's been such a fun project for me. Um and I have every faith that going forward, it's going to be just as much fun for anybody who gets to keep participating. And now that we've had such an impassioned discussion, um, it's a little bit difficult to follow with closing remarks. But uh, as is typical, we're left with a lot to think about here. Um, Michelle, Sam, and Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. Um, I really, really, really appreciate it. You betcha. Of course. Absolutely. Thank you, Lindsay. And I want to send a huge thank you to everyone listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Exhibit AI, where you can hear more about the intersection of law and emerging technologies. For more from CLCT, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, LegalTechCenter.net. Finally, this podcast is made possible by a generous grant of the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which is funded by Cisco Systems, Inc. We truly appreciate their support of our independent research efforts. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you stay healthy and safe. Until next time, this is Exhibit AI.